If you're new to the church, we've been in a series for 10 weeks now called A Better Story. And in this, we've been looking at the story of the Bible as the story of God, a God who is good, a God who is creative, who made all things, but then who also in the face of failure is merciful and committed to redeeming and restoring what's lost. We've talked about how we each can find our place in God's story, but also we've spent a couple weeks talking about how to engage others in this better story, especially in a culture where we're surrounded by so many competing narratives. But today, the title of our message is The Last Chapter. We'll literally be looking at excerpts and parts of the last chapter of the Bible, but we're also going to see in our time today that the last chapter of this story is simply the first chapter of a much better one to come. Speaking of home, though, the overarching theme of the Bible from the first chapter of Genesis to the last part of the New Testament is God's undying commitment to make his home with us. It's something we see in so many places. And for me, this is a shift in the way that I grew up thinking about Christianity. Uh, The idea was that I'm born into this world. I have a choice of whether or not I'm going to invite God into my life. But the narrative of the Bible is fundamentally the opposite of that. Not us inviting God into our life, but God inviting us into his That's what we see throughout the Bible, because if you think about it, God did not have to create any of this. He didn't have to make any of this. And I know we have answers for why. We say, well, it's because God is so creative, and it's true, but he could have expressed his creativity thousands of ways. Why did God choose to make this beautiful, illustrious garden where he created and placed human beings, and then he himself walked with them in the garden? Why did he do that? The best answer I can come up with is related to God's character, that God is relentlessly relational. It is part of who he is. And I was going to say this morning, God is an extrovert. But I I realized for you introverts, that might have been off-putting. It might have uh, challenged your faith a little. Like, I can't trust this God anymore, you know. Um, But here's the thing. I could also say God is the perfect introvert. He doesn't need any of us, but he wants us. And for some reason, God continually finds ways to involve us and invite us into his life, into his world. And this characteristic, for the record, was around long before we were here. In Genesis chapter 1, it says, when, when God created human beings, verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image. Now, something we've not talked about in our series related to our main character is that he is actually a them, a they. Now, this is not commentary on pronoun confusion. Stay with me, all right? But it is part of who God is. God is three in one. And if you're reading the Bible for the first time or at all and you hit this verse, it should cause us to pause and go, what? Who's us? Well, we see that when in the first few verses of the Bible, the Spirit of God hovered over the waters, hovered over the face of the waters, and then at some point God said, God spoke and said, let there be light. Who is speaking here? 
If you fast forward to John chapter 1 in the New Testament, we find this book of the Bible starts with the exact same language as Genesis, as the narrative creation. John says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. Who's John talking about here? Jesus. And you can tell from reading the chapter, it's obvious the context is he's introducing us to Jesus, the one who was born in Bethlehem, but who did not come into existence in Bethlehem. He was with God in the beginning, and he is God. And John goes on in verse 3 to say, all things were made through him. That's a bit of a twist on the Genesis creation narrative, right? When God said, let there be light, I always picture a big old man with a white beard. Um, But this is Jesus who's actually speaking things into creation, the one who entered into our world and we can read about. Now the Father's role in this, because we can talk about Jesus and the Holy Spirit's hovering, the Father's role Paul speaks beautifully to in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. He says, there is one God, the Father, listen, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, to him be all the glory. But there's also then one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. That's a really beautifully profound, concise statement about the role of the Father and the Son in creation. I think of the Father as like the writer of the story. He's the one with the vision from whom all of this came. But then who's the director? Who carries out the vision? Jesus. He's the director through whom All things came to be, and Colossians chapter 1, among other places, adds, it's through Jesus that all things are sustained. So Jesus' creative word wasn't just to make all things, like winding up a clock and walking away. He is actively sustaining creation as it is today. That is Jesus. But the point is, God has always been intrinsically relational. And that's why when Jesus prayed for his disciples and ultimately us in John chapter 17 and prayed for us to be unified, he never said, I pray that they would be one as they agree on politics. I pray that they would be one as they learn to be nice. He said, I pray that they would be one as you, Father, and I are one. I want them not to manufacture some some unity, but to share in what we have always had from the beginning, which hurts your mind to think about, that they have been in perfect relationship before all of this. So the story of creation is not Adam and Eve deciding to invite God into their lives, but God inviting Adam and Eve into his He is relentlessly devoted to making his home with us. But of course, we know very early in the story, the story took a turn for the worst. At the beginning of Genesis, God blessed creation. In multiple places, you'll see he blessed, God blessed, God blessed the animals and he blessed the humans and he said, be fruitful and multiply. That was God's vision for his creation. And that was the blessing. But as we know, Adam and Eve disobeyed God and they brought curse into the world. This word curse is not as you may envision God angrily punishing. And I think that's kind of, that can be an image of cursing, I curse you or whatever. Curse is simply the natural consequence of trying to pursue blessing apart from God. 
It brings curse. It's when God says, this is how you will be blessed. I made you so I know. It's like uh, the, the maker of a canoe knows that a canoe will be happiest in the water. Now, the canoe can say, I'm going to be happy in the desert. And that's not going to be happy for that canoe, right? And so curse is when we try to reach out and seize blessing apart from what God has laid out for us. So curse came into the world basically where our experience of joy and peace and rest and everything God made us for were replaced by guilt and fear and shame. And you don't need a sociological study to make the case that those things dominate in today's world. And this curse brought difficulty rather than creation responding to our cultivating efforts. God said to Adam, it's going to fight with you. And rather than multiplication being fruitful, being a a joyful experience, God said to Eve, this is going to hurt. This will be painful to bring life into the world. But this all ties back to us moving away from the home, the place God intended for us to live in. And the end of Genesis, that's literally what happened after they sinned. God said, behold, man has become like us. There it is again, by the way. Us. Knowing good and evil now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat. Because remember, they had eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they thought, this is going to make me like God. And it brought all the negative things in like shame and guilt. But anyway, he said, lest they eat of the tree of life and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden. How many of you have ever been evicted? Don't raise your hand. (laughs) Um, Probably not a real fun experience, right? Being pushed out of your home where you were made to be. And this might read as harsh. God's like, oh, let's, we don't want them to live forever. Let's kick them out of the garden. You know, growing up, I just always struggled with these kinds of verses. But then it hit me this week. Imagine that the place you're currently living, your home, your apartment, wherever you are, imagine that you found out this afternoon that it was filled with asbestos and mold and radon. Home inspectors, is there anything else I'm missing? I don't know all the things. But imagine it was filled with all those things. How much would you want to stay there? You see, God looked at Adam and Eve in this post-sin, post-fall garden where they were supposed to experience joy and trust and peace and innocence and beauty and instead they have fear and shame and they're arguing with each other and God's like, the last thing I want is for them to live forever in this place. And so God in his mercy drove them out. And it says at the end of chapter 3, he placed an angel to, quote, guard the way to the tree of life. Now, again, I have this image of like, um, like, uh, how many of you play Capture the Flag? You know, like you're, you're guarding the flag and you're trying like this and the angel's like, nope, you can't get it. And so, again, I was just like, okay, that's, that's a weird picture to me. The angel's like blocking the tree of life. But then I studied that word guard and it literally means the opposite of block, of prevent. It means, uh, it's the Hebrew word that I'm not going to try to pronounce, but it means to keep open, to protect, or to preserve. Why? Because there's coming a day when we'll be able to eat from the tree of life the way we were meant to. 
And that is why the angel is there to protect, to keep the way open for us. And if you haven't noticed ever since that first eviction, humans have been trying to get back in all kinds of ways to that original home, to that place of innocence, to the place of trust and peace and relationships that don't implode. But the good news along the way to that future reality, God's not just been waiting for us to find our way back home. He's persistently bringing home to us. And that's what I want to spend time this morning with our time looking at. One of the best examples of this in the Old Testament is the tabernacle. The tabernacle was this tent of meeting, this place where the people of Israel would go to meet with God. But what's really important to remember and know is that the tabernacle wasn't the people's idea. They didn't wake up one day and say, you know, we have a lot of good stuff. What we need is some spirituality in our life. We need a place of worship. Let's build a tent. They didn't do that. It was 100% God. It was God's desire and design. Exodus 25, God said to Moses, have the people make a sanctuary for me. Why? So that I may live among them. You must build this tabernacle and its furnishings exactly according to the pattern I will show you. Now, a couple things to notice is that the word tabernacle here means what? To, to live with, to dwell with. So the name given to the place is exactly what it was intended to do. It'd be like if you opened a burger joint and called it Eat Burgers. Like, let's go to Eat Burgers. What do you do there? Eat burgers, right? So God wanted us to not miss the point and to be absolutely clear that the first place of worship, the whole point of worship, isn't to try to make yourself feel better because you messed up. It's not to try to earn God's favor. It's not to do penance. The first place of worship was a place to be with the one who made you. That is what worship is, and that is why worship transcends a Sunday morning meeting or a building. It's out when you're hiking in the woods. Wherever you say, God, thank you that you're with me. That's God's heart from the beginning is to be with us. And he said uh, to Moses, there's an exact pattern I want you to follow. And I've, again, always wondered, what's the big deal, right? Let's just throw up some walls, get it done, and you can meet with God. But God's like, no, I want it to look this way. And when you study the design of the tabernacle, it has multiple visual references to the garden. So for example, when you enter from the east, the east entrance, which is the garden is in the east, and so this entrance to the tabernacle is facing east, and it was guarded by angels. And when you enter into the first room of the tabernacle, there you'll find a lampstand that God said, I want you to shape this lampstand into the form of a beautiful flowering tree. And so you come into this room and then there's stones that are mentioned that he wanted specifically used in the construction and in the garments of the, the priests. And he mentions these stones, gold, onyx, bedellium, whatever that is. I think it's myrrh. Um, all of those three are specifically mentioned in Genesis 2 as being abundant in the garden. And then, of course, the whole point of the tabernacle was the inner room, God's presence where people could be with him just like they were made to be. So the point of this is as people walked into this tent, it wasn't just like a place you went to worship. It was to remind the people 
of what they were made for. You were made for this place, and you're not there anymore, but this is where you're headed. And that's the other thing. It wasn't just pointing backwards to the garden. It was pointing forward to God's promise to restore us to the home he made us to live in with him. That was the whole point of the tabernacle. And so as you um, fast forward the story, 500 years later, they built a temple, which, by the way, if you didn't know, is designed with the same shape and the rooms and the furniture as the tabernacle. It was just a permanent space instead of a temporary um, portable tent. But both structures were God's way of saying, I want to be at home with you. I want to be with you. You And the eagerness of God to be with us is something I think you can see when both structures were completed, the tabernacle and the temple, it says that a cloud of God's glory filled the place. His glory and his presence filled the place. And you can study these passages later on your own, but it's fascinating how similar they are that when these two structures, 500 years apart, were completed, God rushed in with his glory and his presence. I think that says a lot about God's heart to be with people and why he made us not to be separated from him. But as great as this era was, as beautiful God's intention and commitment to make his home with us, the book of Hebrews tells us that the tabernacle and the temple are simply shadows. They're copies of heavenly realities yet to be realized. And shadows of things to come. So when Jesus came into the world. And you remember John who said in the beginning was the word, the word is with God, all things were made through him, Jesus the creator. Later in that same chapter, he says the word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. You know what that Greek word is? It's their word for tabernacle. Literally means Jesus tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So notice this significant turning point in the narrative where before we had a cloud of glory that filled the room, here we have the Son of glory to fill creation. God himself enters in in the person of Jesus Christ and fills our reality with glory. He became flesh and dwelt among us. And the point here is Jesus is the tabernacle. Jesus is the temple. He identified himself in John 2. So if you just turn the page in that same book to the next chapter, Jesus was standing in the temple after casting out all of these people who were, who were corrupt and um, unjust and abusing people, basically. He, he just kind of lost it in a moment and was like, get out of here. This is not what this place was made for. And then he said to the religious leaders, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. I'll raise it in three days. And the leaders are like, are you crazy? It took us like 50 years to build this temple. But John, like two verses later, says, by this temple, Jesus meant what? His own body. Jesus Christ identified himself as the temple of God, meaning we don't go to a place to find God, friends. We go to a person. Jesus is where we meet God, our creator. He is the one we go to. We don't go to a place. We don't find glory and life and meaning by attending church. We find glory and life and meaning by accepting Jesus into our lives 
by knowing him. And then all of these other things just build on that. When Jesus encountered that woman at the well, we looked at that several weeks back in John chapter four, the woman of Samaria. And the woman poses a question to Jesus. Where do we go to worship Jesus? What's the proper place? Do we go to the temple in Jerusalem to worship? Should we worship here in Samaria? And what's Jesus' answer? Basically, neither. He's like, it's, it's not about a place that you go. It's about the fact that, quote, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. So notice, worship isn't about, I, I'm going to that church. I'm going to that building. So that's worship. True worshipers realize that God is with us and in us, and that's what he wants and has always wanted. And then the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Can I just say to you today, he is not waiting for you to reach him. He came and found you. The Father is actively going after you to make his home with you. So worship is not about a building or a ritual or a, a moment in the calendar. It's about a relationship with God through Jesus, the temple of the living God. We're going to get to that more a little later. But even as God along the way proves his commitment to make his home with us, it's really important to note that Jesus openly spoke to his disciples about the fact that he is going to prepare a literal place for us. Literal place. Uh, of being together the way God made us, a home where we can be together. But nearing the end of his ministry, his disciples kept hearing him talking about how he had to leave. He had to go away. And they're like, where are you going? And they were pretty disturbed by it. And he was referencing being you know, crucified, basically the, the cost, the price he would have to pay to bring us home. And they were bothered by this. And Jesus said some beautiful words to them in John 14. He said, do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. They were still struggling with who Jesus was. They're like, yes, we believe in God, of course, and also there's something really special about you. Jesus is like, we're, we're the same in this chapter. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, it makes sense that I will come again and get you, that where I am, you may be also. Guys, that's a really beautiful and oddly specific promise from Jesus. I am going to prepare a place for you and I'm going to come back and get you so that the whole goal of this from the very beginning has been that you could be where I am. Jesus said, I'm preparing this place. And that's What's going on right now? Those of you who've had people over for meals know that there's preparation. You have to buy some food. You have to make some food. You clean up, hopefully, a little bit, maybe, you know. Um, and you're welcoming them. You're watching like I, when people are, you know, looking at the clock and they should be here in any minute. That's God's heart for you. For me, is he's, he's, he's eager. He's preparing and he's ready for us to be home together. And he's not just going to, stuff some dirty clothes under the bed 20 minutes before we arrive, right? He is preparing a place that, as the Bible portrays it, is something that we just can't even imagine. It's beautiful. It's, it's amazing. And, of course, the question that we're sort of left with is, what is this place like? What is home going to be like? Growing up, 
My answer to that question would have been, and I tried to uh, summarize it succinctly, floating in the clouds, playing harps, and singing hymns. Anybody like, yeah, that sounds great. I hated the idea of that. None of that appealed to me. And in fact, it scared me because I, I love this place. I love hiking. I love the sun. I love fishing. I love friendships. And so the idea of floating around with angels and playing harps scared me. And so obviously I was relieved to find that this sort of Hollywood picture of heaven is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says there will be a brand new earth where creation is redeemed from its bondage to decay, in the words of Paul in Romans 8. No more decay, no more death. There will be colors and vibrance that we could never imagine, and frankly, our current eyes couldn't see, probably. We'll have glorified bodies, the Bible says, like Jesus' resurrected body. Uh, It's been said over the years that people use 10% of their brains. I think it's a myth. It's maybe been shown to be one, but if you talk to my wife about me, there's some maybe evidence that points to that. Anyway, I'm joking, Um, mostly. But how many of you are excited for your body to work the way God made it to work and beyond? All of the best parts on steroids without any of the bad parts. And guys, speaking of home and our bodies, I couldn't help but think, and my mind just kept going back to it this week, this tragic rise in the number of people who don't feel at home even in their own body. And friends, we should, that should arouse empathy in the people of God who are like, my goodness, where has creation come that we don't even feel at home in our own bodies, but that's gonna be no more. We're gonna know who God made us to be There won't be confusion. We're going to have new bodies walking this beautiful new earth. And Revelation 21 talks about a heavenly city, part of this place God is preparing for us. And I wish we had like a whole morning to go into the city. There's so much to that that you can read about in the Bible. But the city will literally come down to earth. And in this place, we will live and will work and will laugh and will explore all as a function of worship to God. Worship isn't going to be you know, an hour on a Sunday morning. It's not going to be some songs that we sing. It's going to be our entire reality lived in the presence and basking in the glory and the delight of God himself. That's what worship has always meant to be. The last chapter of the Bible, John says, the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, And on either side of the river, the tree of life, there it is, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. And not just this amazing fruit, but the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. And there will be no more curse. Amen? For the throne of God and the Lamb will be there and his servants will worship him. Friends, how about this? Radical reversal from what happened in Genesis chapter 3, where we were pushed out of home and God welcomes us home, where we were blocked from the tree of life. Now we're eating freely of the tree of life, where a curse came upon creation and now he says there will be no more curse. The curse will be lifted and the healing of the nations, we will be healed of everything that has plagued us all these years. And I know that we could each share personally of things that plague us, whether it's 
shame or anxiety or injustice or corruption or broken relationships or lost family members or violence or oppression, all of those things gone forever, remembered no more. And friends, as exciting as this will be for us, no one will be more stoked than God. I don't know if I can say stoked in a sermon. I think I can. That's right. Good. Because leading up to this, chapter 21, just one chapter before the end of the Bible, it's like God can't contain himself. Revelation 21, John says, I heard a loud voice from the throne. There's this, this is like Will Ferrell skit, voice modulation. He can't talk quietly. Everything is loud. But like John hears this loud voice from the throne, which is God, saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. You ever like get excited about something and you're talking? I've got at least one kid that does this and they're like rolling and eventually I'm like, oh, whoa, whoa, like love you, but slow down. I, that's how I picture God here. Everything that I made humans for that we've been separated from for so long, finally, I get to be with people. Now we may have all questions about why God doesn't hit fast forward on the story. I, I don't know. And maybe that's another message. But this is going to be such a beautiful, celebratory time. The Bible says in Isaiah 25, verse 6, The Lord himself will prepare for all people a wonderful feast, a delicious banquet with well-aged wine and choice meat. This is going to make Thanksgiving seem like a snack, right? And you won't pass out on the couch afterwards. Like, <laughs> let's just keep eating, um, Guys, this is in the Bible. This is it. It's not some cold, dry, floating in the clouds reality. It's a new heavens, a new earth, a new body where there's joy and rejoicing. Friends, when people think of Christianity, it breaks my heart that so many of them imagine a religious system that they're being asked to enter into. Or some rules that they're being required to follow. Expectations from Christians. And if they attend to church, the potential of judgment. But guys, Hebrews chapter 12 is so clear that when we come to Christ, who is the temple of the living God, the place we go to meet with God and be connected to him, we are not coming to a fearful religious system or to some rules or some expectation of judgment. The Bible says we have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to countless thousands of angels in joyful gathering. That's the reality. That's the home that we are headed for in Christ. And guys, there is a lot about that reality we don't know. And I think it's important as Christians when the Bible is silent to at least admit, yeah, we're not totally sure about it. a lot of it. And there's a lot we do know that we don't have time to talk about in our time this morning. Jesus' millennial reign uh, the destruction of Satan, the enemy, the resurrection of all people who will be judged and held accountable for how they responded to God's offer of salvation in Jesus. It says when there's a resurrection, those who are alive will join those who have gone before in the air and we will be reunited and be with the Lord forever. There's so much that we could talk about. 
But the overarching theme again is God's passionate pursuit of humans and his persistence to make his home with us. As you read the end of the Bible, there's a lot that resembles the beginning. I started making notes in Revelation 21, 22, garden, like that, that's like the garden. And there's so many similarities. And as I was thinking about this, I was reminded of how many movies and stories mimic this theme in our culture of, of somebody leaving home, going on a journey, usually with some trial and difficulty and pain, and coming back home at the end, a changed person. I'm sure you could probably think of, of some examples. Um, I know we have kids in here. How many of you have seen The Lion King? Okay, yeah. And kids, if you've not seen it, just ask your parents. It's 30 years old this year. So that blows my mind. But anyway, um, The Lion King, here's the opening scene of The Lion King. If you've seen it, you know, right? And I was going to play a clip, but I didn't want that jalapeno song stuck in your head. Um, I don't think it's jalapeno. But that's what I sing, and I choose to believe that's what they're saying. Um, but this is the opening, uh, the opening scene. Simba is a baby, right? But then at the end, here's the last scene of the movie, right? Simba's grown, has a baby of his own. So it's the same place. It's the same scene, basically, but everything's different. Uh, another example from the stories of our culture is the Lord of the Rings, Lord of the Rings is a, is a wonderful um, story based on a series of books, but it starts out, as you can see here, in the Shire, and Gandalf and Frodo riding down the road together, but then after months and months and months of epic, painful journeying, Frodo, um, after 11 hours of film, if you're looking for that, maybe a little marathon, 11 hours to get through those movies, here's the last scene of the movie, back in the Shire. But everything's changed, right? Why? Because Frodo left his home, took on a burden that no one else could take on, and sacrificed his own comfort and convenience literally to save the human race. That sound familiar? Friends, I point this out to show how ingrained this story is in our hearts that they even manifest in the stories of Hollywood that we want to be back. We want to be home. We know we weren't made for this. It's a longing in our hearts that even the movies we watch reflect this desire of people who don't even know this story. And so in the last chapter of our story, we see God with people like the garden. We see the tree of life like the garden, more or less. But then we also see some undeniable reminders of what Jesus did to pay our way back home. For example, this feast in Revelation 19 where God is going to prepare all this amazing food, it's not just some generic party, it's called what? The wedding feast of the Lamb. The Lamb. The one who sacrificed himself for our sins and for our salvation. The last chapter in Revelation 22 when it says the water of life is flowing from the throne, it says the throne of who? God and of the lamb. Now you may notice there was no lamb in the garden. Why? There's no, there's no need for sacrifice. There's no need for redemption. But everywhere we look in this new home, we are going to be reminded of what it costs. And we're going to be rejoicing at what Jesus did to bring us back to home. 
So friends, we are living in the last chapter of our story as we conclude this series. This life that we have is in the last chapter. Paul said to the Corinthian believers when he wrote to them, he described them as those, quote, on whom the end of the ages has come. Now you may be aware that this was written 2,000 years ago and some people are like, well, why are we still here? I don't personally believe that Jesus' return is like some mile marker off in the distance that we're getting closer and closer and closer to. I believe that heaven runs parallel to our reality and that ever since that first moment when Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place and I'll be back, it's imminent. At any moment, Jesus could re-enter heaven on earth and he could come back. And that's why no matter how we interpret the end times, I know there's a lot of differences in the room. As far as the order of events, the nature of Jesus' millennial reign, there's some, dis- there's some differences there, which I think is beautiful. But whatever our differences, I think we can all agree what Jesus regularly reiterated in the writers of the New Testament, that we are called to be ready. We are called to set our minds and our hearts and our hopes on that home that he's preparing for us and to live with anticipation of this homecoming. So as we close... I just want to encourage you today um, that you don't have to wait to be at home with God until that day. Because you might hear this and go, yeah, awesome, that sounds fun, Micah, but right now life stinks. You don't have to wait to experience joy. You don't have to wait to experience his spirit filling your heart with things that you could never produce on your own. God today is making his home in his people. Peter says, we are like living stones that are being built up as God's spiritual house. He lives in us. David wrote in Psalm 22 that when we worship God, God inhabits the praises of his people. Do you ever wonder when we're gathered and we're praising God, why it doesn't feel like something special is happening? The reason is, Something special is happening. God promises to show up and manifest his presence in a way when we are gathered together praising him that he doesn't otherwise. God is continually moving toward us and making his home in our hearts. And Jesus gives us all these ways in the New Testament where he says, hey, this is how to have your home with God. Later in that same chapter where Jesus said, I'm going to go and prepare a place, I'm leaving, but he adds this. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. How beautiful is that? God couldn't get more obvious in his desire and his intention. He's determined to make his home with us, but it requires response. Anyone who loves me and obeys my teaching, anyone who believes in me. Revelation 3 says that Jesus is standing at the door and knocking. He's knocking. And the reality is for many people, they leave him there knocking. But we have the option to invite him in to realize he's preparing a place for us, but he also wants to come in and prepare us for the place. To change us, to make us more like him along the way. The reality that there are people who are hurting and broken all around us who are desperate to know this better story of hope. Friends, Jesus said, anyone who loves me, obeys me, we will make our home with him. We will be like living foreshadowings of heaven for people around us. And I thought about Psalm 1. What does Psalm 1 say? Blessed is the man. Blessed, that's God's heart and intention for us, is the man who does not 
walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. That's basically a picture of somebody who's believing in Jesus and walking with him today. But here's my question. What is that person like who does that? The psalm says he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. Does that sound like anything we just read? In all that he does, he prospers. Friends, God's heart for you and me is to be a healing tree of life presence in your home, in your workplace, in your relationships that someone could see you and encounter you and and experience healing and know that, that, that there's something blessed about this life that you are living Worship team can come to the stage and close us. And I was reminded of this being the first week of Advent. And we, in the next four weeks, are going to look at these themes of Advent, hope and peace and joy and love leading up to Christmas and how all of it is tied up in the person of Jesus. But today's theme is hope, which I think is fitting for where we're ending our series. Advent, the word Advent literally means awaiting the arrival of something, looking forward with anticipation. And Hebrews chapter 6 encourages us to hold fast to the hope set before us. And then in the next verse, he describes hope as a steadfast anchor for our soul. Does anybody feel a tendency to drift in your hope? Or you set your hope on something that you thought was going to fill you, and then you realized it didn't? Maybe even related to Thanksgiving and something you wanted for that weekend, and it didn't happen. We, we, we all do that all the time. We know that our hope drifts, but he says this hope is an anchor for your soul. You'll never be let down. You'll never be disappointed if your heart and your hope is here. And so as we close, I figured that it was appropriate as we began our series reading the first words of the story to end our series reading the last words. In this last chapter, Revelation 22, where it says the water of life is flowing and God himself in verse 17 near the end of this chapter, near the end of the story, says, come, anyone, anyone who wants to drink from the water of life, anyone who wants to put their trust in Jesus, you can come today without price, without cost. You don't have to jump through any hoops. You don't have to try to undo the mistakes you've made. You come as you are and God makes you new. He says, come and drink of the water of life. But then even as he's issuing the invitation for us to come, Jesus interjects in verse 20 and says, surely I am coming soon. And then what do we respond to that? Can we say this together? Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And then John ends with this blessing. May the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. And that's the end of the Bible. But friends, this last chapter of our story is simply the first chapter in a much better one to come. Would you pray with me? God, we praise and we thank you for the hope that you have laid out before us. We thank you that this hope is not dependent on us earning or performing or trying to get ourselves back home but that you, rather than waiting for us to try to reach you, you reached down to us and you sent your son into this world to enter into our humanity, to live the life we could not live and to die the death that we deserve and then prove your power over even death 
through your resurrection and your ascension. And Lord Jesus, we look forward to seeing what this place will be like. God, I pray that you tune our hearts in this divided culture and world, in this distracting place that we live. You would tune our hearts to the hope that is coming for us. That you would grow in us a healthy homesickness that we would be able to say when we're asked, where do you call home? I guess it's here, but I want it to be with you, Jesus. Lord, be glorified. Lead each one of us. Transform us by the power of your spirit. We worship you.